This episode of the Business of Agriculture is brought to you by Nori. Feeling left out of carbon markets? Nori is a carbon removal marketplace that welcomes early adopters of regenerative farming. We work directly with farmers to enter their data and project their carbon credits, which the farmer owns and sets the price on. Nori is the marketplace, not the middleman, so farmers get paid directly once their credits are sold. We believe that carbon credits should be an asset the farmer controls, not the rights that they sell. To learn more on how you can enroll your farm, visit nori.com growers. And if you are a company looking to get involved with carbon markets, reach out to hello at nori.com. Nori, a carbon marketplace for early adopters. Visit nori.com growers. Well, greetings and welcome to another fantastic episode of the Business of Agriculture. We've got a great program for you today because we're talking about transportation. We're talking about shipping. We're talking about inputs. We're talking about the stuff that we need that comes from other countries, as well as the stuff that we produce that goes to other countries. And I've got a shipping and transportation guy as my guest. His name is Andrew Bauer. He is the director of sales for Liquid Logistics Solutions. And I know you're saying, what the hell is that? Because that's what I said also. He's going to tell us what that is. He's also going to tell us what OEC, that's his company, stands for. Or maybe I'll tell you, it's Orient Express Container. And the point is, we got a global industry, right? Most of our industries are now global. There's a certain amount of stuff that comes from other countries that we need to produce our crops. You saw this this spring. I'm recording this, by the way, in summer of 2022. We were worried we weren't going to be able to get our fertilizer. We weren't going to be able to get our crop inputs, our herbicides, insecticides, etc. stuff that's manufactured overseas. How much of a concern is this going to be moving forward? The crops in the ground, most of us here in agriculture in North America got what we needed. But what's it going to look like down the road? That's why I've got Andrew Bauer on here. We're talking about logistics. We're talking about how it's impacting the entire economy in the United States of America, but particularly the agricultural economy. Andrew, thank you for being here. Pleasure to be with you. All right. First off, tell us what you do. Um, I'm just imagining... You sit there and look at a computer screen and it shows little ships. It's kind of like Battleship. Like I'm guessing it's almost like a video game. There's little blips and it's going across the Pacific Ocean and you pretend you're managing it. The truth is there's somebody on a ship that's doing all that. Somebody on a shore, you know, like longshoreman that's doing all that. Long Beach, California. All right. I'm kidding. What do you do? Yeah. So, so, so you're right in a sense. I mean, we are, while we don't own the vessels or the trucks, we do contract uh, with major shipping lines and with uh, major trucking partners here in the U.S. and all over for that matter. So um, in a word, we are managing shipments end to end, right? From pipe to pipe uh, or factory to, you know, uh, retailer. So our responsibility is to take custody of these goods Um put together a fully integrated logistics solution that would include trucking, uh, export customs, ocean freight, and any uh, supporting documentation to, to have an effective shipment. Big picture, Andrew, that we've been hearing, and you know, I read the Wall Street at least every day that I travel. I glance through at the days that I'm not traveling and pick up a few articles. It keeps me sharp and gives me a big picture, a big world picture, if you will. Um, I'm not a transportation expert. I have friends that own trucking companies, for instance. When they tell me stuff like, yeah, I can't get drivers, um, uh, <laughs> where our, our, our book rate is two and a half times what it was a couple of years ago. I'm like, what, what, what are you talking about? Just give us an overall 
it's a screwed up mess. It's very expensive and stuff still not getting moved as well as it should. Is that the general? That is, uh, that is the general assessment that I would make. And the fact is, Damien, there are, there were problems that preexisted uh, or, or that predated COVID, right? So we have a major demographic issue in the, in the trucking space with drivers aging out of the workforce. There's not a lot of young folks that want to be truck drivers. So that was a structural problem that predated COVID. Um, and so the issue is when you have a, you know, a 30% or more increase in consumer demand in the U S um, you know, there's five to seven loads for every driver and it's, it's very much a seller's market in that respect. And so I think shippers are, are the ones to, to ultimately feel the pain there, not only through rising rates, but through challenges with, um, you know, on-time deliveries and, and things like that. You know, dig, dig that, that, um, I host a group called the Business of Agriculture Success Group. Oh, a couple dozen people from a myriad of industries within agriculture that are, you know, mid-level to senior level in their in their own industry. And we get together every couple of weeks. And it's interesting the things that we discuss because you see it from their perspective, the person in animal health or the person in feed, the person in seed. And, and you see all this, an overarching um, theme has been, there were problems pre-COVID and all we really saw was an exacerbation of it once we stressed the system. And that's kind of what you just told me. We already maybe didn't have enough truck drivers and we already were a little stretched on things. Um, and then all of a sudden the government shuts us down and Shanghai shuts down. And it's like, holy crap, it just exacerbated. That's kind of what we're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I think a really useful way to think about supply chain, uh, especially nowadays, is, is like a circulatory system, right? In the sense that there's this constant need for replenishment, right? You, you need that oxygenated blood uh, making its way through. And if there's any blockages, um, you know, or any issues with the, the valves, which I would liken to, you know, port facilities, et cetera, that can cause major, um, you know, major issues down the line, stroke, um, uh, arrhythmia, things like that. So it, it's useful to think of it in those terms that it's a, it's a cyclical thing, right? It's all a big circle just because cargo arrives here and it's unloaded on, um, you know, let's say a, a, a farm facility, if it's equipment yeah. or, you know, UAN, if it's, if they're looking for fertilizer, et cetera, that doesn't mean it's the end of the supply chain. Right. Because what you're having happen is these containers that the cargo arrives in have to make their way back. They have to go back to China. Right. Yeah. To be refilled. And so if there's anything that's disrupting this constant flow of goods and equipment, it, it can uh, have drastic effects, you know, knock on effects that bleed into other regions as well. It's an interesting thing that um, most people that are thinking people um, have come to realize over the last two years but some still don't get it and maybe they never will, but certainly in ag, we saw it. I was interviewed on uh, Fox news or something about two years ago. And even my friend, I got a friend that's, you know, Wells master's degree was my college roommate. And even he had to call me up and said, I don't understand why we're not going to have pork at the grocery store when these farms have these hogs. And you said they're, they're destroying them. Like meaning I said, yeah, they're taking them out and digging pits and killing these hogs because they can't get through the, the processing. He says, well, why don't they just keep holding the hogs? I said, hold them where? He said, well, I'd explain them. Like every day there's a piglet born 
And then it's in this system where it's on the teat on the sow and then it gets weaned mm-hmm. and then it gets put into a starter barn and then it gets put into a finishing barn and then it becomes uh, put on a truck and then it goes to a processing facility and gets made into pork chops and then it gets to the grocery store and then you buy it and you eat it. And at the front end of that, there's a little piglet being born and it's going through that whole thing. So yeah. when, it when it can't become pork chops because the plants are shut down because the workers got COVID, all of a sudden you got a bunch of your capacity. Where are you going to hold them hogs? Are you going to put them in yeah. your backyard? You know, it's so when people from town are like, I understand it seems cruel that we've got no pork chops in the grocery store, but we're taking pigs out and, sl- and just throwing them in a pit and shooting them. Like, where are you going to put them? Where, where are you going to put them? And that's, exactly. I mean, same thing with milk. I had to explain that, Andrew. Some of the do-gooders were saying they should prosecute those farmers that are just dumping milk down the drain when there's no milk in the homeless shelters. I said, okay, find me a homeless shelter that can take an 8,000 gallon tanker truck of raw milk. And by God, every dairy farmer I know will send it there if they'll just pay for the fuel. That's what a lot of folks didn't get. Like you said, it's a circulatory system. It's this entire thing. And once it's messed up one place, there's going to be inefficiencies to say the least. Exactly. So, so, you know, and, and I think you can carry that analogy through to, to extremes, right? You, you have parts of uh, the body that atrophy uh, or that, you know, die off and and you have parts of the economy that die off. We're seeing a lot of uh, small business failures because people cannot get inventory. They can't keep inventory stocked. Um, So so really what we're seeing is, um, as I said, a 30% increase in consumer demand. And and it may, it may help Damien to kind of back up a little bit and, and, give you the the backstory of how we got here with respect to supply chain. So we're going to go pre pre government's shutting us down. I I know that there was like to say COVID, but let's talk about what really happened. Government shutting down. People could have been sick. That's fine. But the point is it wasn't just somebody having uh, COVID. It was that we shut stuff down and it created amazing amounts of distortions. Right. Correct. Yeah. And that's a great word for it. Damien is, is distortion. Um, Economic, social, cultural, I mean, any spectrum, any lens that you want to put this on. Um, so so really what happened was China got hit with COVID first, right? And we're talking, you know, if memory serves, I want to say November, December of, of 19, we started hearing the, the whispers coming out of China, you know, the Wuhan area. Um, and, and effectively, you know, the government shut everything down, right? So factories were no longer manufacturing shipping containers, um, there were blank sailings with a lot of these major uh, ocean carriers who so bring all this cargo to, to, the, to, to the person that's not a liquid logistics solutions director of sales. Sure. Blank sailings means blank sailing simply means that that there's actually no vessel service. So there's actually nothing uh, getting those those shipping containers and that loaded cargo to the U.S. Yep. Right. Uh, and the reason for that, again, was the, the whole economy shut down in China. Um you know, the CCP is very um, strong and it's an organized economy. So whatever they say goes. And if they say we're shutting down, then that's what happens. So one, one, one of uh, one of my ag affiliate guys likes to say, remember, communists are stubborn. Uh, they, they you would say to yourself, wait a minute, won't this be economic suicide? It doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> control, right. control, control matters more than pragmatism, right? It's all, it's always about being in charge. That's exactly right. And if, and, and it's for better and for worse, right? So for example, if you, if you're trying to have an extremely efficient port system, right. And you're wanting to bring automation in 
and you don't have to worry about unions, right? And you, you know, you can do whatever you want. And so, so China, you know, in that sense, control is a good thing for, from the government level on down because they can make everything as efficient as they want without any obstruction from, from unions or other interests, right? Um, whereas no, no adherence to things like human rights or environmental uh, concerns, just, uh, you know, whatever you want to do. Got it. And so from a, from an economic organization perspective, it, it can make a lot of sense um, with respect to efficiency, right. And throughput at these port facilities. Um, whereas you see what happened recently with Shanghai and the lockdown, it can also work in reverse and be, uh, you know, a detriment or, or a distortion, as you correctly put it, meaning everything shuts down because we had a case of COVID, right? Which is, it would seem it's a real overreaction, um, but but that doesn't stop them, right? They shut down nonetheless. You know, I, I was on the phone with a colleague some weeks ago who is in Shanghai, and she had been in her home for three weeks, right? Literally inside, indoors, not going out, um, and I said, you know, when is this going to be over? And it was uncertain, right? And, and so there was very little guidance that was coming from the government over there. So it can work both ways, right? If you're trying for efficiency and, and um, you know, not having any obstruction from special interests, then, you know, it, it works to your advantage. Uh, if, you're, if you're trying to keep a supply chain going and not shut down, you know, for a few COVID cases, yeah. not so much. So there you were, you started seeing this. Um, we heard rubbles, you know, we, we, we saw an article, whatever, but did, did your industry start sounding the alarm? Did you like, did you sit there, Andrew Bauer in, in the, in this role that you have and say, this is going to be bad. The shit is going to hit the fan. This is going to be a bad. Do you say that like before any, the average person before flattened a curve before endless press conferences from Fauci and the scarf lady? I mean, did did you see this before all of us? We did. And and the reason Damien is, is we have, um, we have quite a few offices in China, right? Mm -hmm. So so we're a Taiwanese company, um, but, but we have a very strong presence in China. And so we had people on the ground who were actually, giving us local feedback. Um, it was not, you know, it was unvarnished or unfiltered, shall we say, by, by the media narrative, et cetera. Um, so we had a pretty early indication in, in Q4 of 2019 that, that we needed to prepare. We, honestly, though, we weren't quite sure at that point how badly it would impact us over here. We knew that it was probably likely to get out, but we obviously we had no medical data or anything like that to, to decide how, how, uh, scared we should be. So, so really what happened, you know, taking this back to supply chain 101, China was in lockdown for a couple of months, right? And then you get into February uh, of, of 2020, they start opening back up and we go into lockdown here that very next month, mm-hmm. right? And I will never forget it. You know, we had, I think four or five conferences booked for March through early April, just back to back to back. <laughs> and we saw one cancel, and then another, and then another. And within the span of a week, the whole world shut down. The NBA canceled the season. You know the story, right? Andrew, imagine, so, imagine if you're, a large part of your income was getting paid to do speaking uh, at conferences. And imagine if you woke up on March 12th and every conference you had booked to get a paid contract to speak at for the next nine months called you and said, we're canceling. It wasn't quite nine months. The, the first four months uh, canceled and then it 
kept falling like dominoes. So yes, I remember distinctly. Yeah. They took a they took a dollar <laughs> or two. They took a dollar or two of revenue out of my pocket. Trust me. Yeah, and just it it was brutal, right? And, and it really upended our whole way that we interact with clients, right? It's a very efficient system when you go to a conference versus traveling all over the country, you know. Yeah, so you uh, you you um, you were going to be meeting with all of the people that use your services to move stuff. <laughs> now now they're not sure they need it moved, and you're not sure you can even uh, do it. It's it, it's it was probably a little stressful time for Mr. Andrew. Absolutely. And, and so, you know, to, to carry this through to kind of that 30% increase in consumer demand, what happens, right? When, when we go into lockdown here, we start clicking by on Amazon, mm-hmm. right? And, and we had, you know, this cash infusion with these government programs, et cetera. So, um, you know, obviously I, I personally think a tie in as well was that home prices were, were at all time highs you know, you had a lot of people who were uh, cash flush from, you know, home equity lines of credit and things like that. So there's all this money in the economy uh, all of a sudden, and we're locked inside going, well, you know, I, I have to have this thing, right? So we're buying and m- most of this stuff is coming from China. Yeah. And so when you were locked away buying, China's just coming out of this really, you know, deeply um, uh, kind of this real challenging time in their supply chain. We've never seen anything like it in our lifetimes and they never caught up. That's the real takeaway for people to understand is we, we are still trying to play catch up from March of 2020 when all this started. And the the short version, Damien is rates, freight rates went to eight or 10 X what they were, you know, the year before. So I want to bring it all back to, I mean, we're going to bring it all back to agriculture because that's, of course, my listeners. And we're going to talk about some of the stuff we saw. And obviously, we're going to take a look ahead. But before we do that, I'm going to take a little break right now and hear from our good friends at Pattern Ag. Question, have you ever lost yield to an unexpected pest or disease? Now, I'm talking to farmers and landowners here. But it's every season that you're forced to guess about some of your most important management decisions. Well, now you don't have to. Pattern Ag offers the most advanced soil analysis available today. In addition to a comprehensive nutrient analysis, they can predict next season's risk from the most damaging pests and diseases, including corn rootworm, soybean cyst nematode, sudden death syndrome, and more. For the first time ever, a single soil analysis can help you optimize your crop protection and fertility spend at a subfield, field, and operation level. Refine your management decisions, optimize inputs, and maximize your yield. Go to www.pattern.ag and get started today. All right, we're back now. Andrew Bauer, he is Director of Sales Liquid Logistics Solutions. Uh, he gave us a good overview of what happened. And the point is, given specifically the Asian uh, manufacturing model that um, was running at full capacity, then it got distorted and then we kept buying stuff. And Andrew made a good point there. Um, the average suburbanite, um, and I still read the articles. They say things like I read the Wall Street and it says, now, since most of us are back to doing things after locking ourselves in our homes for two years, I'm like, well, who the hell did that? I didn't lock myself in my home for two years. I couldn't. I'd lose my mind. I'm high energy. My wife doesn't even like it when we're in that when when I'm not traveling for about a week at a time. She's like, do you have somewhere to go on this farm? Go out there on the 200 <laughs> acres and get away for a while. Anyway, um, but 
those people sat at home and, uh, and pecked around on their computer and bought crap. And it filled the, you know, it, it, it really already then put a bunch of demand on shipping. And now we got warehouses everywhere. Every town I drive through, there's warehouses everywhere and there's containers that then get put on the trucks um, because we've you know changed that. And the point is, none of that stuff was our stuff, but our stuff, meaning herbicide, fungicide, insecticide, uh, inputs that we need for agriculture, it's competing for space on that same vessel, Right. Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. So, so really what's happening is there, there's a few parts to every shipment, right? You need a container to put the product in, you need space on the vessel and you need trucking to get that loaded container to the port. Right. And all of those have to line up. And so what happened was again, the, the demand for shipping containers was not being satisfied. Why? Because they, they shut down, literally shut down these factories for, for several months. So, if we had come out of, of COVID and, and not, or sorry, if, if China had opened up after their shutdown and we had not bought anything, there still may have been a strain on, on the, the con- empty container supply. Yeah. Uh, but when you start buying 30, 35% more consumer goods than you were just several months ago, the impact to your point, Damien, is, is not only distortion, it's catastrophic. Did it really so, go so then, by that much? Did the average household with these people in the suburbs, the ones that apparently sat around for a year and a half and didn't leave, I was not that person. I can't stand that. Uh, so did they really increase their their purchase of stuff by one third? Well, if my front porch was any, any bellwether for that, then uh, yeah, I think I had probably more than 30% increase in the Amazon boxes on my porch. Okay. All right. So yeah. that's, that's big. That's big. And so um, we hear about these containers. Was it that they would just, the demand, then there wasn't enough containers because we also heard that some of them were not going back full or what, what happened with all that stuff? Cause I, I mean, I need a shipping right. person like you to explain it. Absolutely. So, so to go, you know, to revisit my circulatory system narrative, right. To your point, Damien, once that, once all the cargo gets here, let's say you got lucky enough to get a container, to get it loaded and to get a carrier, to give you space on one of these ships to get it to the U S right. You're in great shape. Well, when that container gets here and it's unloaded at your farm or at your, you know, ag processing facility, Mm -hmm it doesn't just stay there, right? It has to go back to Asia. All of this stuff is on loop. So what we started to see was people fighting for space out of China. Mm-hmm. You know, they were bidding up the price because please, I have to have inventory. I have to have fertilizer. I have to have glyphosate, etc. And when you're having shippers bid against each other for a, you know, a finite resource like vessel space or equipment, It's really a game. The calculus is very simple, right? If I own a production facility in Kansas um, and I have an input for my process that I have to have, or I shut down my plant or my processing facility, um, or if I can't fertilize my crop, or if I can't apply, you know, the correct pesticide, for example, because it hasn't arrived from China, you know, how much market share am I losing? What's the real cost of, of not paying that, obscenely high freight rate. And so that was really the calculus. And that's why these freight rates were, were so elevated within such a short amount of time is people were trying to keep their businesses alive. Yeah. Right. And, and, and they were willing, it's like, 
you know, we talk about elasticity of demand and, and all that with consumer goods and for, for you non-agricultural economics majors, that essentially talks about uh, when prices move, what does it do to your demand structure? That's the elasticity of demand. There's some stuff, you know, food, is, prices keep going up a bunch. And if you're starving, you, there is no elasticity of demand. You, you will pay for it, right? Some of these businesses, I knew people that said, I, I don't want to go... I don't want to go out of business, so I'll pay whatever I have to to keep bringing in my the things that I need, you know, inventory. We saw a big flex on that, unfortunately, and um, it hurt those businesses tremendously. Also, I think that the market saw, well, wait a minute, we were afraid of bumping rates. Imagine when I heard the container ships or the cost of container, Andrew, like went from three grand to 30 or something like that. Did we really see that much and still the marketplace bore it? We did. And and you can imagine, you know, this was before um, commodities prices are, are as crazy as they are now, right? So so the cost of freight made up a, a significant part of of some of these, these inbound products or equipment or what have you. Um, so, so yeah, the, the calculus, as I said, is very easy. I either have a business or I don't. And, and one of the other, you know, real evils of this whole supply chain crunch was a lot of money had, had already been put in here, right? In other words, domestic inputs that you can get here in the States, you know, whether it's seed or, you know, fer- you know, fertilizer components or equipment, but maybe they were waiting on an additional component part from Asia, right? We see this, for example, you know, in, in I'll, I'll step away from ag here for just a moment to give you an example. We work with a lot of lubricant companies, mm-hmm. right? Who, who may sell into the farm equipment space. Um, and they may have 90 plus percent of their finished product here, right? Sourced wh- wherever from, right. from Canada um, or, or from a more local region. But if they're waiting on 5% as, as a lubricant additive to make that finished product in order to sell it into the market, and that's coming from Asia, it's crushing, right? Because you're having plant shutdowns. You're not able to claim revenue, right? Especially if you're a publicly traded company. So there's a lot of tie-ins that go into this um, for, for minor components of, of finished goods. Yeah, so I've, I've made this point. General Motors builds pickup trucks about 20 miles from where I'm sitting right here at my farm office in Indiana. And uh, you'd drive by there and there'd be pickup trucks stacked like cordwood out there. And it couldn't sell that $50,000 Silverado because uh, it didn't have a chip. And so the point I made was if you got a $50,000 pickup truck that cannot be operable, apparently can't be sold because of that chip, what's that chip worth? $50,000. I mean, well, at least, <laughs> and and so that that thing, I can't sell this fifty-five gallon tub of grease uh, lubricant, whatever you're talking about there, because I don't quite have that last five percent that's coming from overseas. What's that? What's that? That drum of lubricant worth? It's whatever that five percent is coming. So here's the thing. Big question: Does this lead to, as I predict, it will? a move to deglobalization. We were all about globalization for the longest time. You're a little younger than me, I can tell, but I worked in a factory. My factory don't exist anymore. My wife's worked in a factory when she was young in college. 
uh, we don't manufacture like we did once, you know, before. And it was a big push to move stuff south of the border or to overseas. Is this going to be the impetus that deglobalizes now because countries do not want to be held over a barrel for that chip, for the pickup truck, or that 5% that makes it so the lubricant has no application because it's not quite finished? Is that what's going to happen? That's a really great point. Um, I, I think that that we will start to see some nearshoring over time. And obviously, the, the timeline for that varies from industry to industry, right? Right. Some, some components are more replaceable than others. Oh, okay. Um, so, okay. You're, you've been in this your whole career. Um, by the way, I think it's neat. Bachelor of Science in Maritime Administration from Texas A&M University. I've got Aggies that listen to this podcast because they're ag guys, and they probably didn't even know that the the cow college known as Texas A&M has a maritime administration program. Anyway, so you've been this your whole career, Andrew. What things get reshored or nearshored the quickest? What categories? That's a really good question. Um, you know, we, we do a lot of, of um, support for chemical companies, mm -hmm. right? And so, um, you know, one of the things that's big out of Asia is additives, right? And Korea, Taiwan, um, you know, China, those would be the biggest ones that, that are the most industrialized and have the most uh, chemical production capacity. So, you know, the, the challenge is, there's a whole reallocation that has to happen, right? Of capital, of an investment into uh, refining capacity, um, process, you know, uh, refining processes, et cetera. That's expensive technology. So it can't happen overnight, but I'll tell you, you know, if you're sitting on, like I said, 98% of your finished product and that 2% is causing a plant shutdown, you're going to, you're going to really um, fight hard to, to, to do some nearshoring. And I will tell you a lot of executives, you know, at these multinationals, these petrochemical companies, they were already discussing nearshoring prior to this COVID supply chain crunch. I think this just accelerated it. You know, one of the reasons for that would be China's stated goal of kind of moving, uh, not maybe entirely away from the West, but, but building out supply chain networks to Europe, to uh, Indochina and to Africa, right? Sub-Saharan Africa. You're seeing a lot of Chinese investment in railroads, port facilities, et cetera. And I think ultimately they want to control a broader portion of, of global trade. Through yeah, that. you're going to get me going and I'm not sure we have time for it, Andrew, but when you said China's <laughs> a stated goal, what, of global domination, of destroying, uh, uh, destroying uh, Anglo-American, uh, I can go through all the things that are their stated or unstated goals. But yes, the New Belt and Road Initiative, which I've been telling my ag audience for the several years, we thought it was great that China bought our soybeans. And I said, do you realize they don't want to buy our soybeans? They want to replace us until <laughs> they're using our soybeans until they don't have to. They have a process known as the New Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which is the New Silk Road, which is really called economic colonialism. Yes. So the, uh, th their move is to go and create infrastructure, in the, particularly in the third world, and then extract the resources from those countries. The stuff that when you talk about nearshoring, by the way, I got off on a little tangent there because I tend to be pretty anti-China. Um, I'm sure that the Chinese Communist Party is watching me. But then again, so is our own government and so is Google. Anyway, um, Andrew, 
Uh, see, I like it when you laugh at some of my stuff. I, I, I didn't know if I would ever, you know, have a conversation with a maritime administration uh, uh, graduate. Here I am. Nearshoring. Mexico? The new NAFTA? I think I think that would be a good option. Um, you know, we've got an office down in Mexico, and the amount of trade that, that goes back and forth is astonishing. I think most people don't realize, even though there is the, the trade agreement in place, um, you know, it's it's easy. It's fast, right? You can send lubricants in a rail car um, in a matter of days down to Mexico. That you're not you're not necessarily beholden to vessel schedules and, and container freight, et cetera. All of the ag people that are convinced we can't live without China. The point that I make is uh, Mexico is now our number two agricultural uh, customer. Number two, number two. The Mexican population is one tenth of what. China's is, and Mexico is uh, more than half of the consumption of our agricultural stuff than China is. So I believe that there's greater uh, synergies to be capitalized on in that whole new NAFTA program and the the Central America, I'm sorry, mostly North America, of course, Mexico and us. What do I need to tell my people? What more importantly do you need to tell our people in the business of agriculture? What should they expect? You know, we got through this year. All the scares that we weren't going to build, we weren't going to build plant crops because we wouldn't have the seed, we wouldn't have the inputs, we wouldn't have. Now it's fuel. Um, what what right. do I? What do my people need to expect? So, so just broadly speaking, Damien, you know, we we're, we've gotten to a point in supply chain where we're we're starting to be limited on the number of tools right that that we have to combat this this crunch um in capacity you know high rates etc one of the best tools that you can possibly have is time right lead time etc um not only with your your producers but mainly with your logistics partners okay so so the more time we have the more time we, we will use to make all of these variables in supply chain align. Can I get a truck when I need it? Right. Can I get that to align with my delivery windows? Can I, you know, wh- what's the transit time? What's the risk of, um, of being outbid here? Things like that, you know, and treat your logistics partners as a customer, right? It, I think the days of, um, you know, treating truckers, for example, you know, with a stick instead of a carrot are over, right? That, that market is, is completely transformed. Um, to your point, you, you said it best, right? COVID was just a catalyst, right? We were already seeing this, this structural issue with, with trucks. And I'm speaking particularly for, on the, the domestic delivery side. Yeah. Well, you um, said, uh, I wrote it down. You said there's five to six truckloads for every trucker. Is that a real number? That, that might be understating it. Oh my believe God. it or not. So, yeah. All these people that uh, still think that that little junior needs to run off to a liberal arts school and rack up a $40,000 a year debt to get a a degree in uh, humanities and art appreciation should really just uh, send their kid to get their CDL license. Tell junior to get behind the wheel as fast as he can, and he'll be able to buy that liberal arts education in a few years. In cash. Well, wasn't it Walmart that uh, was that bumped their pay to their truckers like $130,000 a year or some ungodly number like that? Um, There you go. Are we going to be here for a while? The the short answer is yes. Um, The longer answer is because it's a demographic issue, you know, and I'm speaking specific to the trucking side here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. We are 
right? I think the long-term play 10 years out, 15 years out might be automation, right? I think that's something that the Ubers of the world who are burning, you know, literally burning billions of dollars uh, a quarter are really playing towards. They're hoping that they can get their, their tech to the level where they can have a truck that's driverless. Uh, you know, Uber freight, I think that's, that's a real play for investors. The question is how long can they hold on, you know, with them just burning through that amount of cash. Right. And it, so, so I think that's where the market for you and me, it's, um, can we get smart before we die? And for these, uh, these tech companies that can they get profitable, can they get the technology and profitable before they go broke on all the, the early enthusiasm money, right? That's it. That's it. And you're seeing big pullbacks in, you know, venture capital money right. um, a, a year ago, hell, even six months ago, yeah. um, you know, guys who were throwing billions of dollars at, at companies that were already, you know, the, the, the valuations defied all, yeah. all logic and, and sure. common sense. They were still throwing big money at it. And to raise money, you didn't have to do much. That changed literally in a matter of weeks. And so, you know, we, we'll see how, how long this thing actually takes um, to, to develop. But I think short of automation and trucks, you're going to have to see wages and therefore the cost of delivery to your listeners, farms or production facilities increase. Right. And, and when that wage level reaches a, a certain, a certain point, you'll see an influx of younger people who want to drive. Makes you wonder though, uh, you said the biggest tool is to, uh, you know, control your distribution. Probably the best tool is to not need stuff. Uh, I mean, then, then you, you know, it's, but then it's the old thing of you can't be an economic Island, right? It'd be, it'd be better if we didn't need the stuff because then you're not held over a barrel, but what is it you're going to go without? Is that kind of the. Exactly. Yeah. And as long as you need stuff, you know, as long as that's a necessary evil, um, diversify your logistics partners, right? It, a lot of the people in the ag space are BCOs, meaning beneficial contract owners. That, that simply means that they have direct contracts with shipping lines um, and in, in some cases with trucking companies for their logistics services, right? I would say if you're a BCO in, in that space, maybe consider outsourcing a percentage of your supply chain, maybe 15, 20, 25% to a third party, to a forwarder or an NVOCC. Um, NVOCC? Yeah, I, I was going to clarify that. I'm using industry lingo. I'm, I'm gathering a, that. Yeah, non-vessel operating common carrier, right? So that just means we behave like a shipping line, but we don't own the vessel. We don't own the trucks. We're non-asset based, but we're organizing everything. Um, so, so maybe consider if you're a BCO bringing in for a portion of your cargo, uh, a third party, because they'll have different relationships than you do, right? They, they may be able to secure more favorable pricing on certain trade lanes than you are. Um, you can't be everything to everyone. I think it's interesting. Then I talked about uh, reshoring and and deglobalization. And the thing is, specifically talking about agricultural inputs was where we really got squeezed and we can't really make fertilizer. We, we, we in the United States can make all boatloads of nitrogen, but we can't make, uh, uh, potash so much, you know, uh, and, and some of the phosphorus stuff so much. And then, then it's a matter of how much time would it take to get to where we could do this stuff domestically or even in Mexico. And, and it, like you said, it may, you'd say, I'll oh, just start making it here. Well, okay. Where? you know, so. right. Right. Multi-billion dollar investments, you know, time horizons, 
with, with permitting and all that to, to invest in, you know, refining capacity. It's, it doesn't happen overnight. In a year from now, when I'm recording this in June of 2022, Andrew, are we still going to be hearing supply chain? Is it going to be a, just an excuse or is it still going to be a reality one year from now? Oh, uh, you know, if I, if I really had the answer, Damien, I, I would, I would be, you know, on a beach somewhere, but, uh, you know, my you, best you guess, actually, is, you're, in, you're in Galveston, Texas, which I think technically you are on a beach somewhere, but yes, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. So, so, uh, our best guess and what we're advising clients is plan for the worst, hope for the best. And, and that's a very cliche answer, but, but the, the, the more nuanced answer is, all of this supply chain crunch and, and madness originated because of elevated consumer demand, right? That's really what squeezed everything and created a lot of imbalances yep. that have persisted since March of 2020. And the only thing, in my opinion, that's really going to get us back to somewhat uh, normal, and I'm putting that in quotes because I don't think we'll ever go back to, to where we were pre-COVID, but, right. but something that's more bearable for logistics and supply chain managers and, and importers is a, is a decrease in consumer demand, right? And the, and only way that, the only way that happens is if, is if you financially harm the consumer, which then is, is good for controlling inflation, but it harms the consumer. <laughs> yeah. And if you're, you know, if you, um, if you follow a lot of leading economists, uh, Mohammed El Aryan is is one of the guys that I follow. You know, he's he's the former um, head of Pimco, the, the bond company, yeah, yeah. and then he's now the the chairman of of Cambridge University or the president, I believe. Um, he, he's a great guy to follow on inflation and, and what it means. You know, a lot of leading voices are saying that the Fed acted too late on inflation, and so the trick now is going to be: can we have a soft landing? without going and tipping into recession. And, and I so, think that's really the best case scenario here. And, is and we see other, a slowdown. Yeah, but not a, the, the a thing you continue to point out is these, we were already elevating demand for goods anyway. Mm -hmm. And then we get the distortions two years ago and it just, and then of course it's inflationary. I think I want you to come back in a year and, and we'll hit this subject again. Are you willing to do that? I would love to do that. All right. Thanks again to my sponsors, Nori, the Carbon Marketplace, and Pattern Ag, Advanced Analytics for Your Soil. Uh, we've been talking to Andrew uh, Bauer. He is with a company called OEC. If people want to find you to talk about this with you more, how do they do that? You can, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I do a lot of direct messaging on LinkedIn, just giving people updates. Um, you can reach out to me. My email address is ab.lls. That's Lima Lima Sam at oecgroup.com. Uh, or you can visit our website, oecgroup.com. We post a lot of industry and market updates. AB.LLS. At oecgroup.com. And Damien, if I don't have the answer, I, I know someone who does. I like it. Thanks for being here. Uh, his name is Andrew Bauer. My name is Damian Mason. Please share this with your friends, agricultural and non-agricultural alike. Subscribe to my YouTube station and my YouTube channel. And please listen to more of my stuff. Till next time, it's the business of agriculture. This episode of The Business of Agriculture was brought to you by Nori. If you're feeling left out of carbon markets, Nori is a carbon removal marketplace that welcomes early adopters of regenerative farming. We work directly with farmers to enter their data and project their carbon credits, which the farmer owns and sets the price on. Nori is the marketplace, not the middleman, so farmers get paid directly once their credits are sold. We believe that carbon credits should be an asset the farmer controls, not the rights that they sell. 
To learn more on how you can enroll your farm, visit nori.com growers. And if you are a company looking to get involved with carbon markets, reach out to hello at nori.com. Nori, a carbon marketplace for early adopters. Visit nori.com growers. 